Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Hello. Good to see all of you. Thank you. When I was entering my freshman year of high school, I was five foot two inches tall. When I was entering my sophomore year of high school, I was six foot one inches tall. In a similar way, my son over the last two years has grown from size seven feet to size 11 feet. Now those are both examples of what we would call growing pains. One of them was a growing pain in my knee and the other one has been a growing pain in my wallet. We buy new shoes like every month, and I'm not even kidding you. Now, in a similar way, as we continue our series as a church family in the New Testament book of Acts, a series we call Onward, we come to chapter 6 of Acts, and we are going to look at how the first church also went through some growing pains together. Now, if you haven't been with us throughout this series, let me just do a quick review. What we see in the book of Acts is after Jesus rises from the dead, he spends some time with his disciples... And then he ascends into heaven and he says, I want you to continue my mission in the world. And at first, they're pretty unsure about that. How in the world are 120 of them going to continue Jesus' mission in the world? And then we learn in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, that's what it's called, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit on these followers of his. And to make a long story short, on that one day, 3,000 people joined the way of Jesus with this 120. So in one day, the church grows from 120 to 3,120. And then if you have been with us the last several weeks, we've learned that the church continues to grow throughout the book of Acts. We learned through about 5,000 more people are added to their number. So I just want you to picture this. This church that starts at 120 has now grown to 8,120 or something around that line. And so if you're following on your notes, the church now faces one of its greatest challenges yet, success. The church faces one of its greatest challenges yet, success. Now you may laugh a little bit about that. How can success be a challenge? But I just want you to think about this. Think of like some of the celebrities that we know. And you read about their stories and how they shoot to fame. And a lot of them aren't ready for that kind of success in their life. And so they go through some difficult circumstances in order to make themselves ready to re-enter into that successful kind of life. Now listen, this church in the first century... It didn't have a constitution. It didn't have any sort of organizational plan to go along with its growth. They were led completely by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was the only thing keeping them together, keeping them on track and on mission. Now understand, while a church is relatively small, while this church was small, that worked pretty well. But eventually, the Jerusalem church encountered the dangers that accompany any church that grows. And before we go any further, I just need to do a little time out here. I just need to say something important. I want to make a comment. Growth is good. Growth is good. I once heard somebody say, healthy things grow. Now, the pushback we always get, people always get, I'm not just we by me, but like the pushback is always, well, the church shouldn't be all about the numbers. And while I completely agree that the church shouldn't be all about the numbers, It's interesting to me, as we've seen in Acts, how carefully the early church is counting the numbers. 
How they're happy and successful by a growing, healthy church. Because listen, what does growth mean? Growth means more people are coming to know Jesus. And more people are following Jesus. And that is what the church is all about. That is our mission as followers of Jesus. I think Jesus said something like, go and make disciples of all nations. That's his vision for what we're doing here together. Jesus loves growth. We can read that same thing in the theme verse of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, kind of the theme, sums up the whole thing. In fact, I have it on your notes. Will you read it with me? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' dream is for his church to grow, more people to follow Jesus. And so listen, growth is the mission. But the question I want to consider with you this morning from Acts 6 is, if you're on your notes, how can a growing church function to keep fulfilling its purpose? If you haven't already, I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn it to Acts chapter 6 or your smartphone or your iPad or whatever. If you don't have one of those, you can grab a Bible from the seat underneath there and you can find this on page 887 of those black Bibles. I just want to do two things with you today. I want to talk about two common growing pains that a growing church can face. They may be different issues than the one we're going to look at in Acts 6, but I think these are common themes that different churches are going to face. And then secondly, I want to talk about God's solution to these growing pains. If you don't mind, would you bow your heads and let's pray as we open God's word. Father, you've given us a mission, and we don't want to ever lose sight of that. You have the words of life, and we carry those words into our world. We know that you love more people coming to know you. That's why you came. So we pray as we look at this passage today, we would remember your heart behind all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. It starts this way. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, and by the way, the word disciples doesn't mean a special class of followers of Jesus. It's anybody who follows the way of Jesus. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now read verse 2 on your notes from the New Living Translation. It says, So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now you may be asking, how do I know how to pronounce all those names? The truth is I have no idea, but they teach you in seminary. If you pretend like you know, people will think you know. Verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. We'll pause here. Like I said, I see two problems in this passage that can happen in any church that is experiencing growth. The first problem is this, if you're on your notes. The established people complain about all the new people and vice versa. 
The established people, the long-standing people of the church complain about all the new people. The key word here is complaint. Both groups start to complain. Do you see that in verse 1? One group complained against another group. The long-standing people don't like all this growth. We don't like it. I used to be able to park my camel right out front. Now I got to walk like 30 miles to get to the church. That's my seat you're sitting in. You should have known that. I've had that seat for 20 years now. I have to wait in line for coffee. Are you kidding me? This kind of attitude then rubs off on the new people, right? And they start to complain here as we see, right? Nobody cares for me here. This church is too big for me to get involved. This church doesn't care. I don't like cherry pie. Why did you deliver a cherry pie to my house? Now, obviously, I'm kind of making fun a little bit of a serious situation. The point here is not everybody's happy. Because as things grow, things change. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that not everybody likes change? I know, it's hard to believe. But some people have a really hard time with change. Now listen, Jesus loves a growing church. But not everybody loves a growing church. Because if you're falling on your notes, as a church grows... There is change, and change is hard. Now, the particular problem in this church, as best as I can understand it, is this. I mentioned the church started with 120 disciples, and most of them were from a category called Hebraic Jews. These Jews were probably the more conservative Jews. They spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They went to the temple all the time. They were the original followers of Jesus, these Hebraic Jews. And then what we talked about on the day of Pentecost, all these other Jews are coming to believe in Jesus as Messiah. But these Jews are from a different group. They're called Hellenistic Jews. They were probably a little more progressive. They spoke Greek instead of Hebrew. They went to their own synagogues. They melded Greek culture with Jewish culture. And so what we have here is these Hellenistic Jews converting to the way of Jesus, mixing with the Hebraic Jews. And I just got to tell you, There's some animosity going on here. There are prejudice is involved here. So they're all becoming Christians, and they're now all part of the same church together, and there's racial and cultural and ethnic tensions going on in this church. They don't get along that well yet. They're not rowing in the same boat yet. They're working stuff out together. But then what happens is we see here, apparently, the Hebrew widows, the ones who were already there, they're getting first-class treatment. They're like, hey, put the Hellenistic widows in the economy class, shut the curtain on the way out, make sure you don't let them use our bathroom. They're getting first-class treatment. And what does that lead the new people to say? That's not fair. Why do these people get treated better than we're getting treated? Why do they get the first-class treatment while we're getting the economy treatment? Why are they getting more food when the food is distributing more love and more care and more support? Again, this is racial It's cultural. It's highly charged in this church. We've got a real problem going on here. What are we going to do? Can you feel the tension? Greek-speaking widows feeling like they're being shorted. Literally, probably, instead of getting two loaves of bread like the Hebraic widows, the Hellenistic widows get one loaf of bread. And so they do what we all would tend to do, right? They go straight to the leadership and they complain. 
But again, I just want us to pause and note what is the root of this complaint? The church is growing and change is happening and change is hard. Now, nothing wrong with them going to complain to the leaders. This is a serious issue except that this can, not always, but it can lead to a second problem, to a second growing pain in a church that's growing. If you're falling on your notes, a church can tend to rely too much on a few leaders for everything. So they go complain to the leaders, the apostles. And that can lead to a problem churches face, as maybe you've seen this, that the church can start depending too much on one person. I grew up as a pastor's kid. Uh, my dad was a pastor back in the day where pastors were expected to be super pastors. I mean, literally, I have memories of my dad doing everything at the church. I kid you not. He mowed the lawn. He set up the church on Sunday mornings. He was required to preach three times a week. He cleaned the bathrooms. He printed the bulletins. He had to visit everybody who was sick. And then, of course, he was also expected to be a husband and a father to three children. And I just got to tell you, the truth is, my dad, our church, and our family all suffered as a result of that. You see, I grew up in a time in the church's history where it functioned basically like this. Pastor, we hire you to basically do everything. And the church members were simply expected to show up and give their money. That was how the dynamic was supposed to go there. How did that happen? I'm not sure the history of it, but basically what I think happened is the church got offline somewhere. They started hiring a few professional Christians to do all of the ministry. Many people came to church asking, why would you ask me to get involved? That's what I pay you for. I literally heard that coming out of people's mouths at my dad's church. I'm here simply to consume a product from you. They didn't say that, but that's what they were doing. Tragically, this is a reality for many churches today, and here's the result of it. It leaves so many churchgoers unfulfilled. Because we were never meant to just sit in seats and consume a product. It also means the church just kind of limps along, powerless, frustrated, ineffective in its mission. I remember listening to an interview by Michael Jordan one time, and he said his team had the same potential danger. He noticed at different times when he played for the Bulls that sometimes his teammates just wanted to stand around and watch him do something great. And so he was interviewed about this, and here's what he said. Everybody wants to sit back and watch. But one reason why we became successful in Chicago was we had to play as a unit instead of just watching. What makes me more effective is other guys stepping up and being a threat. If I'm the only threat, then I'm doing all the work. Obviously, that's not going to work. But sadly, that mentality has been true for many churches still today where we can act as spectators watching the professionals do the work instead of being participants in the mission ourselves, especially as a church grows. Here's what I think we find ourselves saying sometimes. Well, this church is big enough. Other people are doing that. Other people are doing that. And then as we all start saying that, guess what? Nobody's doing that anymore. Now listen, no one person has all the spiritual gifts necessary to advance the mission and purpose of his church. There literally is no such thing as a super pastor. There's not even such thing as a super apostle 
as we learn in this passage here. Thankfully, the apostles understood this. They understood that taking care of this food distribution problem would leave them no or little time for anything else. They would have dried up spiritually just like that, trying to do all the things that they had been called to do, counseling, preaching, witnessing. They would have had no more time for preparation or prayer. Furthermore, if they agreed to run this food program, here's what would have happened. They would have created more and more spectators. Oh, the apostles took care of it good. They'll take care of the next thing too, and the next thing too, and the next thing too. Nobody would have ever felt empowered to do ministry on their own. Now, I got to say as a pastor, myself, the flip side of this is that this must have been a huge temptation for the apostles to take over this ministry. Why? Because nobody wants others to think they see themselves as above that kind of work, right? I mean, imagine people saying to them, you're not willing to serve in this way? Are you better than Jesus? Didn't Jesus wash your feet? Didn't Jesus take the low place and you can't even serve a widow a plate of food? Didn't Jesus say the greatest among you will be your servant? Whew, I might be tempted to think you're right. I need to do that too. I need to add this as well. There's also a temptation to think, well, things aren't going to happen the right way unless I do it. I know more about this than other people, and I can do it the right way. Truth is, we all have that temptation, right? We all think we know the right way to do things. Certainly, nobody can do the job the way you do it. And so if you're falling on your notes, in a growing church, the flip side of this problem is the leaders can also be tempted to become the professionals. They can begin to take on more than they should. Now the good news is the apostles knew these two potential problems and so when the complaint is brought before them, they recognize if I try to do everything in the church, if we try to do everything in the church, we will stop being effective at what we were called to do. Preach the word, witness to our community, bathed in the power of prayer. They had no desire to be the hub of all ministry because they knew that would stunt the church's growth. And Jesus loves what? Growing churches. Why? Because it means more people are knowing Jesus. And so they propose a solution. We're moving into the next section there. If you're on your notes, here's their solution. They share the ministry with more gifted people. People who are gifted in this area more than they are. I love that. The apostles are not afraid to share their authority or their ministry with others. They observe, we can't get into that kind of ministry because then we'd be neglecting the thing God has called us to do for this church family. Not that that's less important than what we do. It's not. It's simply the fact that that's not our gifting. That's not what God has asked us to do. Now notice carefully here, with, if you've got the Bible open still, the people chosen for this work must have two qualifications. The first one is they must be filled with the Spirit. All that really means is they're following in the way of Jesus in trust and obedience like Jeff talked about last week. And then number two, what's the second thing? They must have the spiritual gift necessary to run this ministry. And what does the Bible say was the spiritual gift they must have? Wisdom. Wisdom is a spiritual gift that God gives to some people. The apostles need to keep doing what God has called them and equipped them to do, to teach. 
to continue to bathe themselves in prayer. They cannot and should not do everything in the church, but they should do those things. And I just want to say to you, what incredible leadership on their part. The willingness to share their ministry with others, to equip others in ministry. Now what's so amazing to me about their solution here is that's exactly how God designed his church to function in the first place. You can read about this all throughout the New Testament, but if you're on your notes, one body with many parts serving together for one purpose. That's what we're supposed to be. One body, many parts serving together for one purpose. As I said, there's all kinds of writings about this in the New Testament. I'm going to focus on just one here. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Let's just stop here for a minute. When I was growing up in the church, do you know I never once heard anything about spiritual gifts? I never once heard that God had given me a unique spiritual gift that he wanted me to develop and to use for his glory and for the edification of the body of Christ and for those who don't yet know Christ. I had never heard that, but Paul says right there, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. So I'm informing you about it right now. The Spirit has given you a gift, if you are a follower of Jesus, to be used for his glory. In verse 4, Paul continues, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. I want to say three things about those verses. First, who does Paul say spiritual gifts are given to? To each one. I could preach on that point for one 45 minutes, at one point for 45 minutes, and I guarantee you there will be someone in this room right now who's going to walk out of this room saying, I didn't get one. I don't have any gifts. I don't know how else to say this, but the each in each one means the person sitting in your seat, if you're following Jesus. In fact, did you know in Greek, the Greek for each one literally means each one. All who are followers of Jesus, who are being led by the Spirit, have been given a unique gift to be used for God's glory, and for the edification of the church. It's so important that you believe that. And you take responsibility to figure out which ones you've been given and how you can use them. Personally, it took me a while to figure out I had given, been given the gift of teaching and prophecy and sarcasm. <laughs> okay, well, sarcasm is not actually a spiritual gift, but I like to think it is. But listen, God used experiences in my life. This is often how we discover our gifts. He used experiences in my life, like my high school pastor asking me to teach in front of 200 other kids. He used experiences like my college professor telling me to get more involved in speaking. And it was through those experiences in my life that I began to realize he has given me a spiritual gift. It's one of the reasons we offer a class multiple times a year called Network, where you can discover your unique spiritual gifts and how you can use them for the glory of God, for the edification of the body, and for the purpose of fulfilling our mission as a church. Second thing I want you to notice is the source of where our spiritual gifts come from. Who distributes the spiritual gifts? Hint, spiritual gifts. Uh, really? 
I'll try that. Spiritual. Who distributes them? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. In fact, as you know that the word Paul uses in Greek for gifts, check this out, so cool, is the same word that he uses for grace. So just think about that. The gift or gifts that he has given you is his grace to you and to us as the body of Christ. Just like salvation is something we don't earn, we don't earn the gifts. We don't choose the gifts God gives me. Believe you me, I would have never in my life chosen to stand up and talk to people. That terrified me. But God's the one who gives the gifts. He administers the gifts among his people in his wisdom, in his grace. He distributes them to us all. That's why it pains God so much when his followers aren't discovering their gifts and using them. It's essentially saying, no thank you to your grace. No thanks. And then that leads us to the third thing we learn in these verses. These gifts are given for a specific purpose. Gifts are given to help the church fulfill its mission in this world. And what's our mission? To make more disciples. To tell people about Jesus and the hope and the life that he offers. Now listen, look up here for a second. My gifts were entrusted to me, not for me. They were entrusted to me for you. They were entrusted to me for those who don't yet come to our church to bless you. Now, quick review. How many of you have gifts? Yes. Well done. And your gifts were entrusted to you for who? For me. For each other. For our community. For our world. That's why they were given to you. And this is how a church grows and matures and thrives. Now back to our passage. The apostles knew this, and they knew if they were not using their particular gifts, trying to do everything, the church would stop growing and thriving and maturing. So they come to this beautiful conclusion. We have to keep doing what God has equipped us to do. And we need to find other people to start doing things that we're not gifted to do. It reminds me of those old posters during World War I or World War II. And I'm saying that to you this morning. We need you to fulfill the purpose God has for us as a church. And so the leaders realize, you know what? It's totally a good thing to help widows and feed them. In fact, that is part of the good news of Jesus. Helping people in their physical needs. But we have a priority. We have a calling. And we can't neglect that. It does not mean what those people are doing is less important, that their gifts are less important. I literally was just talking to a friend in backstage, and he said, man, I really wish I had those more upfront gifts like you. And I said, dude, I wish I could play the bass like you. What would we do without you playing the bass? We wouldn't have the same kind of worship together. No gifts are more important than other gifts to help us fulfill our purpose. In fact, that reminds me of an old story The big animals and the small animals decide to have a football game against one another. And you can imagine it's not going very well for the small animals in the first half. I mean, the rhinoceros is just running all over them. The gorilla, tackling. I mean, huge deficit. They go into halftime. They're all despondent, all the small animals. They come out in the second half, and they're just getting ready for more more beating. When all of a sudden, when the rhinoceros goes up the middle, slam! He gets tackled hard just like that. And they go back to the huddle, the small animals, and they're like, 
Who did that? Who was that? And the caterpillar raised his hand. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> Next play, same thing. Bam. Stop for a loss. Same thing. Third down. Fourth down, they punt. They get the ball. They go back to the sidelines and they, dude, where were you in the first half? He says, I was getting my ankles taped. <laughs> now that's a stupid story <laughs> to make a point. We can't have anybody sitting in the locker room. We need everybody on the field to help us fulfill the purpose Jesus has for us. So we're one body, many parts. We're all different, but every single one of you is important and significant if we're gonna fulfill our mission. So the apostles, the leaders, they're not good at some things, but this becomes such an incredible Holy Spirit opportunity to open up some leadership positions for new leaders to step forward and to carry the ministry onward. In fact, two of the names you might recognize, Stephen and Philip, are being, gonna become important in the next couple chapters of the book of Acts. So not only do they limit themselves to feeding the widows, they realize we have other gifts as well that we can contribute to the mission of the church. Let's step back for a moment and just say, isn't it awesome how God designed his church? Every person created to fulfill a specific work of service for the building up the church so that we can continue to fulfill the mission he's given us. What is our mission? Are you sick of this yet? To make more disciples. If you're following, we're meant to be participants, not observers in the mission. Are you? Are you participating in the mission God has given us? Now, I love what happens as a result of this solution to their growing pains. Would you read verse 7 out loud on your notes there? It says, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. What is the result? Growth. If you're on your notes, with the problem solved, the church continues to grow. Is Jesus like a growing church? Because more people know Jesus. I like that it even says here, even priests are coming to know Jesus. Awesome. All because the disciples learned that the church must function as a body, not as one or two people doing all the work of ministry. Now, as we wrap up this morning, I'm just going to leave us with two questions for us to consider. You probably already know what to expect here, but the first question is, Real simple, have we lost sight of the bigger mission? Have I lost sight of the bigger mission? What is the mission Jesus has given us? To reach more people. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? So easy for me to lose my heart for those who don't know Jesus Christ. Just to be totally honest with you, you know, we've plateaued as a church. Some of that, quite honestly, we've been upfront about this, is because of some internal problems we have with space issues. Look at this service. Can't even find a seat. We have to do something about that. We have to make room for more people. But some of it, I just think, comes down to good old-fashioned, do I care enough to share the good news of Jesus with the people who come along my path? 
Am I willing to take the risk and invite them to join me at church? I know that's what it comes down for me. Because it's so easy to get comfortable, isn't it? This is my church. I'm growing. I'm comfortable. I'm happy. The coffee's good. But let's never lose sight of the mission Jesus has for us. You've been given the good news of eternal salvation. And we're called to share that with others. Second question is, am I playing my part in continuing Jesus' mission? I read something this week, I found it interesting. People who study church growth say that in order to have a maximally healthy church, at least 60% of the people should be engaged in their gifts, either inside the church or outside of the church. I don't know where they get that statistic from, but the principle it articulates is a good one. If you have a church where 60% of the people are engaged in some sort of work for Jesus, then that church is fulfilling its mission most likely. Now, I don't know where our church falls in that category. I really don't. But what I do know is we would like 100% of our people serving in some way with their spiritual gifts, either inside or outside of these walls. Because listen, Jesus' mission is still continuing today. And you and I are his plan A. Amen? Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a part of a church where every member took this seriously? Every attender took this seriously. I have a gift. I have a role to play in helping this church or whatever church you're a part of fulfill its mission. That is the exact picture that God envisions for us to be. And I want to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that too. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.